You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are here in our final week discussing Solari Gentil's Crossing the Lines, also known as After She Wrote Him Elsewhere in the World. And Herds, we're discussing all the way, as I said, to the end of this book to return. I'm very excited because... I've got so much to say. Do you really? Yeah. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> I've okay. I have had such a blast with this book, but these final few chapters have truly divided me. And I don't mean that as a criticism of the book. I still absolutely love this. Yeah, yeah. It's just that it made me feel so many things getting towards the end, which mm. is as as you may know on this show is rare. I rarely display emotion because it is for the week. It's true. I mean, I was going to say you rarely change your opinion about books at the very end. That's really a thing that happens. Usually you, just, you solve it in the first few chapters, uh, and then you're like, well, I've figured out my opinion for this book. You don't even need to read the rest of it. <laughs> That's usually how this goes. Yeah. But yeah, you're telling me this week you've had a bit of a roller coaster, and it is a, a roller coaster going through these chapters following what I would say would be the 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 obvious outcome to this story mm. um, after all the tribulations we've been put through. Uh, and ending in a, a truly farcical ending – um, I have not been this, I don't want to say amused because it's it's more of a grim, ironic laughter that escaped my lips while I was reading this. But there are so many moments in the last couple of chapters where these characters are just having their lives completely ruined. But there is something kind of like ironically, darkly humorous about yeah. <laughs> the things that happen to them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. essentially what happens in this stretch of chapters is that the two authors start to write each other, Madeline and Ed or Ned rather, uh, start to write each other into such a hole that there is no escape. Because you've got to drive the action story somehow. you got to raise the stakes. you got to put Ned in the darkest possible moment. And I will tell you, uh, spoilers, spoilers. That when, when I read this book, I thought there was the slimmest chance that maybe with a couple lines, maybe a paragraph, that Solaria would turn this this fate around. Oh, but, no. But when, uh, <laughs> when Madeline starts talking about, you know, I've put, I've put Ned in a really bad situation, but I just have to write him out of there because this is like a just only natural part of the story. And I looked because on the on the app that I'm using to read, it has like percentage of the way out through the book. And it was yep. at 98% when I read that line. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know that you have enough time to do that convincingly. I don't yeah. know if that's going to happen. You know, once you've read it and got over the initial shock of, wait, what is the, it's over, it's over. Then there's a lot of weight to that moment. Because not only is it circumstance getting in the way of what Madeline wants to do, which mm-hmm. is very much one of the themes that, theme. that Edward was writing about in his story of Madeline, it's also reflective of the situation that Edward's landed himself in, where he's in prison and feels like he can't escape, so he's projected that onto the exactly. character he's writing. Well, it's a big theme of the book. Stuff happens beginning in the chapter of Necessary Violence. Bad things just happen to these characters, and it's explained as the other character, like, you know, writing them to have these bad things happen yeah. to them. But if we look at both of these stories as real life people and their experiences, maybe there just is no reason for it. Maybe bad things just happen. And sometimes a laptop just breaks. It happens. Yeah. I, I think definitely the most confronting part of this end of the story uh, as a reader is the idea that this story is going to end 
finished for us on this layer of reality with uh-huh. Solari Gentil. This layer of the iceberg, yeah. Yeah, but deeper down the iceberg, uh, it, it will never be resolved because both authors have put themselves in this position. They're, they're in a position of uh, purgatory, you know, just to use a sort of metaphor. Yeah, they're just, like to just pick a word out just of anywhere. Any word. They're stuck between finishing the story one way or the other, and we will never know because those characters cannot write anymore. Both of the characters we've been following, the protagonists, are still alive. There is a potential, theoretically, for Solari to write a sequel to Crossing the Lions, but yeah. to do such a thing would feel very disingenuous, right? And it's very much part of the thesis that this is the end of their story, even though if we take it as like the real world, um, these characters still have a lot of their lives left. Yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting to note on that front, talking about how this is all part of the thesis, the concept of the story, is that so much of what is done in this book would just be kind of bad to do in a story with another context. There are loose ends that are openly just (laughs) left hanging on the page. There are contradictions that are Mm. presented by the characters in the story and never resolved. It's just like, oh, I I presented this solution. Well, that was because I didn't like that other solution, even though that was what I'd been setting up earlier. Shout out to Adrian and mm -hmm. Elliot. Like, there are characters who exist purely to to point out how pointless some of these actions are, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like Peter Burke is a character who comes along and he's like, yes, I'm going to get the scoop on the yeah, guy the who killed Vogel. Just does nothing in the end. And <laughs> he sets up the red herring of mm-hmm. Vogel being homosexual, which yeah. doesn't mean anything and has nothing to do with the story. Which right. Is, which is technically like, a, that's a good detail, that it's just like mm. a part of his character. I like that. Yeah. And, and there's so much about that, that if you were to approach this book like a regular crime fiction reader or like a regular literary fiction reader, probably, although I'm not one of those, so I can't, I can't really Definitely not. Comment, Definitely not. Um, <laughs> then That'd then be silly. You'd, you'd kind of be a little pissed off. It's just so easy to poke holes in this book when you take what it does in isolation. But if you look at it in the context of what the story is trying to say, I think it's really impressive just how flagrantly the disregard for any sense of norms is played within this book. Well, that's exactly it, right? You have to admire how deliberate every action is, every every inaction, every pointless action, everything that, that doesn't quite come together and seems even to the characters in the story as, as you know, a waste of time. Uh, we see it as something very calculated and careful, which mm. I like. Um, and it's also a way for Sari Gentil to, to explore the way that she completely ruins the lives of her protagonists yes. uh, with some frequency, which I really <laughs> enjoyed. Yeah. And there's also, I think, some, uh, some sort of uh, judgment being placed on the readers of, of crime fiction as well, that like you want to read a story about murder. That's like one of the worst things things you can do to a person in their life. Yeah. Why are you reading this book called Crossing the Lines, which you kind of know from the beginning isn't going to have a happy ending. I, I've drilled you quite a bit, uh, Felix, on, you know, how do you think this novel is going to end? Because obviously you picked up on the the actual plot points quite quickly, but I thought it was interesting that you you never once seemed to consider that this story could have a good ending. Well, but, I mean, have you read a Solari Gantel novel? Well, well yes, <laughs> for sure. But, you know, like, there's usually some sort of... And no, then no, Rowan no. gets I, away to fight another day. There's usually some... That, that is hope, very misrepresentative you know. of, of Solari Gentil's writing, I think. Yeah. Uh, but in, in terms of the way I approach it, I felt that 
let me let me phrase it through this scene. So you mentioned earlier there's the scene on the boat where the police show up. Sure. And I think reading that, you think to yourself, oh, he's just turning the engine on. You know, oh, there's probably going to be a little bit of drama. Oh, he's no, going to find something out. At that moment, I knew he was screwed. But but yes, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> just, just for sake of example, I sure. think the police's response is completely out of proportion to the sure. action. Sure. It's it's the context of both what Maddie is writing and uh, the situation that Ned finds himself in that kind of blow it out in that way. And as I was sitting there reading it, I was like, oh, okay, cool. He's going to he's gonna go turn the lights on. And then I put my uh, e-reader down and I went to have a drink of tea. And as oh. I was drinking my tea, I was like, hang on a minute. No. <laughs> no, I've got this wrong. Oh, no. Oh, no. The police are going to show up. Oh, no. Solari, what have you done? Ned, oh, get out of there, man. And I, like, picked the book <laughs> back up, didn't even take a sip of my drink of tea and, like, went through the next pages at, like, light speed. Because you're right, the whole time along, I could see the ending coming and I had no doubt in my mind that these authors were going to end up writing each other into a corner because that was so obviously part of the premise of them having to treat each other badly because of the nature of their work. Mm. But the actual text as you go through just keeps slipping these little seeds of just progress where you're like, yes, oh my goodness, she is improving her relationship with you. Yes, they're going to talk about their issues. That's so great. Oh no, she's going insane. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the narrative, right? I, I will confess I had a slightly different kind of uh, headspace this novel. Mm. I thought there was maybe an equal chance of going either way, but I wonder if you could tell a similar story with a good ending um, or if there is room for that, for the story to have um, you know, something to say and have that same punch to it. All righty. Well, Herds, we are discussing crossing the lines. I think that's uh, that's the beans that we had to spill mm. on this story this time around. We're going all the way through to the end of the novel today, and that means that at the end we get to talk about points. We get to talk about how the, the crime and mystery went in this know, very right? crime and mystery-oriented book. Yeah, there's lots of clues to unpack. So many clues The to intricate unpack. web of crime and criminals <laughs> and how they all link together. It's incredibly important. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And right now, we're about to get into the second half of the conversation that we had with Solari Gentil, you may have heard in an earlier episode during this book. We will have the full discussion with all of the juicy bits up on the podcast in full, so be sure to get subscribed up there on any of your favorite podcast streaming apps if you aren't already. We're going to get straight into things. We were just talking about Ned and Maddie's agent, Leith Henry, and all of the different layers of reality she exists upon, because she's also Solari's agent. Herds, why don't you take it away? So my, my only problem with that thought that, you know, there could be as many Leiths as you want is that uh, currently we have three Leiths and we need to move. Here's, here's the thing. So we need to move into the real hard hitting questions. Now that we're in the spoiler discussion and while combing through your book, we notice a very peculiar pattern. Uh, the number three appears so many times. It's enough to make my head spin. Um, there are three matchbox cars that go missing. Ned takes the stairs three at a time. Uh, there's the three Leiths, the three riders with yourself, Ned and Madeline. And most worryingly, Madeline cooks three sausage rolls for two people like a psychopath. What is the hidden meaning behind the number three? I need to know. <laughs> Tell me. I wasn't aware of the. <laughs> that has to be a theory. She cooks three sausage rolls for two people? Yes, for herself and her husband. So I have to know. 
<laughs> this is tangential, but like, is it two for her, one for him? The other way around? Do they cut one in half? I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's probably two for, two for him, one for her, which is okay, the way enough. it works in my house because my, my husband's appetite is bigger than mine. So <laughs> that's probably where that came from. I was not aware of the recurrent threes and it's scaring me a little now. <laughs> It, it it was driving us mad in the second week. We uh we lost our marbles a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, perhaps you're reading it a little bit too closely at that point. Oh, that's our job. Um, that's our job. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> um, yep. But uh, certainly, I will go back and see if I can find a code. Uh, perhaps it was my subconscious, okay. or perhaps it's Roland trying to tell me something through this novel. <laughs> I mean, awesome. three, three is a three is a fairly fairly recurrent number in life, though. It's a good number, yeah. Yeah, it's a good number. It's a strong number in life. So you know, taking stairs two at a time is you know anyone does that. Three at a time means you're leaping. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> it's it, it sort of uh, so uh, it, it, it that may be the result of the other. I can't explain the sausage rolls. I'm a vegetarian. Uh, so <laughs> I have no idea. It could be it could be vegan rolls. I don't know uh, tofu tofu rolls. That anyway. Look. All right. The next thing I wanted to touch on is in the Roland Sinclair series, the experience of traveling is so distinct and captivating. But in Crossing the Lines, I have a very kind of two dimensional vision of lots of scenes. For example, the one that springs to mind is the car chase that Ned gets into towards the tail end of the novel. It was really interesting to me, like, even though the detail is there and it's still written in a distinct and visual style, the, I guess, scenery that uh, I love so much about the Roland Sinclair series is overpowered so much because of how insignificant it is compared to the fact that it is Madeline's choice to put him into this car chase. You know, was this kind of an intentional effort to tip the scales of power in this novel? You know, how... uh, how does that kind of balance shift feel for you as a writer that's so often about that travel-like experience on the page? I think um, because Crossing the Lines was such an internal novel, I had to actually make a shift um, when I was writing it. Because normally, as you know, I write external novels and I write observational novels in third person. But Crossing the Lines was quite different. Everything went on basically within someone's head. I think naturally it just switched to what that novel demanded. And to me, for a writer, what's important, well, when we sit down and when I think of a scene, I have images in my head. It's almost like when you type in the words to the novel, you're standing back and you're able to see the scenery. But mm. when it is happening, when you're actually telling the story to yourself, you're focusing on what people are doing what they're thinking, the movement within the scene. So I think with crossing the lines, I just gave myself over to that. It was a very quick write. I think I wrote it from start to finish in eight weeks. That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> For how well interconnected the story is, how how do you write it so quickly? Good grief. Yeah, I guess touching on pantsing before we wrap up. Yeah, we've we've covered well and truly in this interview. You're a notorious pantser. Like for the for those unfamiliar, for those who haven't picked it up, means that it's flying by the seat of one's pants, making things up as they go. And the thing that 
I was kind of curious about is that the end of this novel, where Ned and Madeline both end up unable to write one another, frames the other for the crime in their story, felt both a fitting criticism of the experience Pants has put mystery readers through, where like, you know, oh, come on, why would you do this to me? I could have could have figured things out if you just planted a bit more, which don't take that too seriously. That's just me having a go. But also I felt that there was a staggering inevitability to what ended up happening where they both wrote each other into a corner, you know, in the process of writing you fly by the seat of your pants. When in those eight weeks did that sense of inevitability hit you or were you uh, at the station when you realized, you know, had you arrived at the end of the novel when that inevitability struck? Uh, I had arrived at the end of the novel. So I I had no idea how it would end. That's crazy. And with every novel you write, you take the risk that you won't be able to finish it and that you won't be able to write yourself out. So it happens with every single Roland Sinclair novel about, you know, 70% of the way in. I think I've written myself into a corner. I cannot finish this novel. I don't know how to get him out of this. But because this novel was an exploration of the what-ifs, I mean, it naturally came to the end that, you know, the the big what-if is what if I can't finish it? What if I can't write my way out? What happens to those characters? Mm. Um, And so... Whilst I didn't know that this was how the – I hadn't decided and I didn't know that this was how the story would end, the fact the, – the idea of not being able to write characters, leaving them stranded, not being able to write them out of the places I've got them into was something that I'd thought about before but in relation to books I'd actually been writing. Um, so I suppose that's how Panting in this works. It's not really that we are – working with a complete blank slate. We are working with all the experiences and the gathered knowledge of our lives. It's just that we are not aware of how we're pulling it together. Yeah. until it actually happens. I think I sure. think that's more or less the answer that I was looking for because I think like as I was getting, you know, midway through this novel, I thought to myself, there is only one way this book ends. Like it is impossible that these writers do not just put themselves into a corner and from which there is no escape because once one can't write, the other can't be written. And that mm. feedback loop has yep. to end things. <laughs> I just, I couldn't picture how that couldn't be planned because my head just works differently. (laughs) And it's such an interesting idea to decipher, but it still comes across so cohesively because as you say, it's still part of those kind of internal ideas that, you know, the the tool set that you use to do pantsing verb. (laughs) The pantsing verb. Yep. (laughs) I think think it's not that pantsers don't plan. It's just that they're not aware of the planning that goes ahead. So they give over... They give the planning over to their subconscious and they trust their subconscious to, you know, let them know when the time comes. That's something that's so fascinating to me. This is why I love having, you know, authors such as yourself on the show to chat to because you you didn't plan the ending. When you wrote the final chapter and said, you know, they end up in this place of complete despair and inability to, to write and inability to like pursue any sort of action in their story. Was that like a scary moment for you when you realized, like, is, is that you thinking as, as a pantser, there will come a day when I cannot write my character out of the hole that they're in? Is that, is that something very visceral to you or I don't know? It's not something that I completely worry about. The, the other thing that you, the, the other thing is I don't see that ending as a, a place of complete despair because that they, they have been removed from real life and all the other things that you have to do in real life. They can spend all their time with each other 
And that's one of the things that I've always found about writing. The thing that is difficult for writers to balance is it's not the writing itself, but it's trying to have a real life as well. Um, a writer's, you know, writer's head is one of those places that a writer can retreat to for days, months, years and be completely happy because there's people in there and worlds in there and um, and things to do and things that engage you. Um the challenge with a writer's life is trying to, you know, still come out occasionally to feed the kids or to feed yourself or, you know, pay bills or do whatever else that real life asks you to do. <laughs> that is such an interesting twist on the way I guess I'd be perceiving that because I I don't yeah. feel the same writer's head, I suppose. That's so, so interesting. I love it. All right. I no, guess I'm going to have to leave us on that thought so I can take some time to soak it in and think about it. Solari, thank you so much. Think about your own life. For joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on, as it has been every time. And we look forward so much to getting to cover more of your work in future. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. Absolute pleasure to talk to you guys again. I, I just love what you do with the show. I, I love the format. It's something that I have never come across before in any other podcast awesome. i think you've got a really wonderful unique way of tearing apart people's novels <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> that's what we try to do <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness you are listening to death of the reader we are discussing solari gentles crossing the lines and it is time for our debrief up next on the show stick around this is your murder mystery world tour on 2ser 107.3 You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing all the way to the end of Solari Gentles Crossing the Lines. I am in the hot seat. And Herds, it's time for you to just let me bask in the glow. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, that's the thing, right? I I don't feel like I can dock you any points in this novel. Um, You not only, you know, figure out the sort of meta layer of what was going on, but also when when I pushed you further, I actually gave your solutions as to who did what murders. Um, and I mean, if, if you picked Willow as the culprit, I was, technically correct. I was so. almost a little disappointed that Solari didn't shatter my expectations there. Cause there, yeah. there are a lot of times, as I've said over the course of these discussions, that this book really just upset my expectations in ways sure. that were super fun. Uh, mm. but the, the crime specifically was a little too on the table, but I also think <laughs> given the premise of things and given that this is like, the approach to crime that I enjoy the most, Mm -hmm. there was no way that Solari could have escaped my grasp. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) Well, let's see that the focus of the, the ending like shifts further. I mean, even throughout the whole book, like we start off, it's very clear that this story is going to be about the murder of Vogel. Mm -hmm. And Madeline is like, Oh, I'm going to enjoy killing this guy. And then I'll, I'll figure out who killed him later. But that detail becomes less and less important mm-hmm. uh, in her mind. She's absorbed by the character of Ned and and he her so that he can write her sex scenes with him. There's the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but but like at, by the end of the novel, the mystery of who killed Vogel really doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it matters a lot to the narrative because of the consequences of the character's actions, but it doesn't matter so, as a mystery to solve. No, not at all. And- on the one hand, if you're reading this as a classic mystery, then that can be really frustrating. Like, 
if if that statement alone wasn't true, I would tell you now, Herds, this would be our number one most recommended book sure. at review season at the end of the year. Like, just stick it in there right now. As it stands, it can only be number two. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and that's because at the end of the year, we do yeah. take the mystery as a bit of a heavy weight just because we are a mystery-focused show. Well, that's the thing, really, it? that's a mistake we should correct. We should just give up. Let's just yeah. start reading children's books because then it'll be less painful I wouldn't to be, try and uh, rank that. mystery fiction. I'd be down for that. Yeah, that'd be easy. Just read it any book ever we're gonna read the hungry caterpillar today yes uh we'll talk about the mystery of how the caterpillar ate so much food so <sighs> what a good idea what a um, good idea but yeah go on uh but i i think that despite all of that it's really fun taking all of the ideas of mystery and kind of just showing the reader what goes on behind the scenes sure. because Despite crime fiction's reputation with big plotters, readers yeah. have an expectation that crime fiction authors plan things out because yes. you get to the end and you go, oh, that makes sense. And then you can read back through the book yeah, and see the like, answers all It all along. made sense from the start. Wow, that's so great. Thanks yeah. to USS Van Dyne for saving the genre from, from <laughs> oh, pants please, hell. Please don't. <laughs> um, but unfortunately for S.S. Van Dyne, S.S. Yeah. Van Dyne did not- save crime fiction from pants to hell no. because that's what we have even lucas pope <laughs> a game designer famous mystery game designer man pretty much pants his way through the story yeah. of return right of the obra din to the point of not technically finishing the game in his own words yes. so don't come at us about that and uh, i i yeah. love how much of a moment of unmasking this is for the genre in Crossing the Lines, because it is a mystery that still deals with all of the mystery stuff. We have the evidence, we have the tweaks, the surprises, and everything's there, but the book is just telling you, like, I don't know, man. I, I just <laughs> figure this stuff right. up as I go. Well, thing, right? Like these 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 authors in in the story, like they just write as they go and they write what they feel, and mm-hmm. that has some pretty drastic outcomes. But they do write interesting art. Yes. And is that not the goal of any writer? Um, yeah. I mean, look, I I, I don't know how much we we're going to get into this, but like, I really appreciate authors who can just put their skeletons mm-hmm. on the table and say, "This is how you write." a murder mystery and it's really not that hard like like it is to like write a whole novel but like constructing a decent puzzle or Mm -hmm. writing up a couple characters that are that are particularly you know compelling um you can you can do it you know you don't have to rewrite the same thousand page scripts a hundred times pause for Um, effect yes well um and and that's that's a way you can contribute to the crime genre without putting your entire life in it you know i I appreciate that yeah, and I think the really fun uh, scene in this book is- The when- only one, the only fun scene. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm playing with you. How dare you? Play? I apologize for that you one. Should. That was too much. That, I mean, that didn't Tell- just tarnish me. <laughs> that tarnished your relationship with Solari. I know it did. I, look, she's never, never going to forgive you for me. such a slight. She she hates me. Mm-hmm. I know that for a fact. Uh, but when <laughs> when Ned is finding out what's happened in the crime, when Madeline is breaking down the changes she's made to the story, yeah. it's just tumultuous i was saying that this book played with my emotions and i remember reading this and just being like come on please do something do something no sorry no what have you 
done. Is that the same scene when he she says it's Willow and that's like no, it can't be. That's too tenuous. Like yeah. that. Yeah. That that was one of my favorite scenes. Like not just for a single moment, right? There are a lot of moments in this story that yeah. I love, but that's full scene of of Madeline debating with her protagonist who the killer should be and him being like, I'm not happy with your decision I know. about who my villain is. Oh. That's really unfair, Madeline. Come on, we need to we need to talk about this. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. the literary writer taking the crime writer to task about how consistent well, her crime is. Exactly. Is that's beautiful. Yeah. Watching these two characters taking turns with each other yeah. to use their authority over the other person to screw with them, and then the other person complaining at them yes. and then getting back at them and then getting like there's a lot of emotion in this book, is what I'm trying yeah. to say. And um, I mean, that's that's why back in the first week, I was so excited when these two characters first spoke to each other is because it it opened the floor for the mystery to kind of just be ruined. Yeah. But in a way that was worth it, even as a crime reader. In a romantic way, what might I say? Yes. Well, oh. I mean, listen, that's that's down to my tastes. Look, all I can say I, is- I'm not going to sit here and rant about how much <laughs> I'd like to just excise romance from crime no, altogether. Big disagree. <laughs> I, look, I love romance stories in my crime fiction. If anything, this is a, a great case study as to why there should be romance, so that it, so they can complicate things. I would have said exactly the opposite. <laughs> Not big disagree. Keep romance in your stories, Solari. I know you're listening. Keep romance in your stories and cause nothing but endless troubles for the main character. That's what I need. That's what I need in my life. I mean, listen, I will Trouble take romance. I will take Solari Gentil's approach to romance in the Rollins and Claire series over most other crime fiction. But uh-huh. that's pretty that's pretty mean of you. Poor Roland. I feel bad for Roland. Oh man! But like, oh, guys, I'm so excited. Yeah, it's great. It's I, a good book. It's a it's a fantastic book. Yeah. Even good doesn't do justice. But herds. Uh, yeah. and, unless oh, yeah. we unless we decide that we're going to have to do a fourth week on this book so that we can actually talk no, about it rather no. than just being frantically we to, we excited. We can't be playing favorites. We have to move on. You're right. You're right. And next week, we will be challenging dear friend of the show, Andrew Popel, the oh, first guest okay. we ever had on from our sister show, Final Draft. And he will be solving parts one to four of Anthony Horowitz's Magpie Murders. You might remember Herds back when you were a young whippersnapper in the year 2000. This isn't where I thought this was going, but okay. That uh, Anthony Horowitz was the author of the Alex Ryder series, The Power of Five, Contributions to Midsummer Murders, amongst other things. See, I thought you were going to make a quip about how I used to get dive-bombed by magpies out on the uh, the baseball field, but that's, that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Tell us. We are going to be doing parts one to four of Anthony Horowitz's Magpie Murders, another story within a story as we continue our stretch of metafiction here on Death of the Reader. All right. I'm very excited to get into this, but fair warning, Herds, this is like two and a half times longer than any book we've covered this year. Great. It'll be really easy then. Yeah. I'll bring my helmet. Uh, <laughs> good grief. Looking forward to it. I'm, I'm in. I'm ready to be challenged. You are listening to uh, Death of the Reader. Good. This has been Solari Gentles crossing the lines. I would like to apologize for this episode. Solari? <laughs> this is Death of the Reader. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. We'll see you next time on your Murder Mystery World Tour. Mm-hmm.